This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Ying.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout-out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Halton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, sorry, 175 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest. So who is my guest of this Friday? Well, Jeremy Pollock is a leader in the field of workplace conflict resolution and peace building. He is a master coach, master trainer, mediator, and author. Jeremy coaches and trains executives and employees at a variety of levels and industries from Fortune 500 companies to major nonprofits. Jeremy has mediated conflicts between business partners, co-executives, and co-workers at all levels of organizations, aiming as often as possible to transform relationships and create win-win resolutions for all parties involved. Jeremy is a regular contributor on the topics of leadership and organizational conflict management to publications such as Forbes.com, Fast Company, Industry Week, and many more. He is also the author of the recently released book, The Conflict Resolution Playbook, Practical Communication Skills for Preventing managing and resolving conflict by Rockridge Press. Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald, my friend. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing well, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Well, it's such an honor to have you. And um, there's a lot of things, a lot of different directions we can go in and a lot of the areas of niche specialty uh, that you stand out for are near and dear to my heart. Um, once upon a time, I used to be in social services at senior management. So there was always oh. co- there was always conflict and there was always things that needed to be resolved. And uh, there were a lot of things at play dynamic wise. But I would be more so obviously interested in breaking down, first of all, the inception of your journey. How did you know that you had this particular skill set or that you were drawn to solving other people's problems? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, you know, so I, I always sort of track my conflict resolution um, uh, lineage back to my martial arts background. I started martial arts when I was a child and and did it my whole life and uh, eventually opened up my own martial arts academies and was doing that for a while as a, as a full-time business. And um, during that time, I started getting some coaching from a, from a coach, a life coach, and, uh, was really, really liked what I was finding in myself in terms of self-discovery and self-awareness and sort of dealing with internal conflicts. And, um, eventually I, 
I started coaching some of my students in the martial arts academy, and um, that grew into a business. And I eventually sold my martial arts academy and 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 started becoming a full time coach. And and at that point, um, I went back to graduate school for anthropology. And and when I when I got uh, when I when I did my research for my master my first master's degree, it was it was in the the realm of intergroup conflict and cooperation. And I thought that was a really interesting area. So. Um, I wanted to learn a little bit more from an applied perspective. I went, I went, and got another master's degree in conflict resolution and peace building, and from there, I really started to focus my coaching practice on on conflict resolution coaching and helping some of my clients navigate conflicts with their with both their partners at home and and business partners and and coworkers and stuff. And then I um and then I I opened up a consultancy. It kind of just grew from there. Uh, and now we're, you know, a, a nationwide consultancy. I've got about 35 consultants that work for my company all across the the country. And we are just every, everyone on my team is a conflict resolution specialist. So that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And what I love about your story, which I very much appreciate you inserting into your answer, is the connection, the correlation that I very clearly, succinctly see between martial arts and conflict resolution, because when you're talking about, first of all, it's individual sport and self-discipline is something that one has to hone and master. And I think if you can master yourself, then I think that's what qualifies and quantifies anyone to step into the arena of being so-called characterized or regarded as a reputable um, expert at what it is that they particularly specialize in. So, you know, for what one would need to be equipped with, for what one would need to be self-actualized about in the form or in the realm of martial arts specifically, I can see how that would transcend and transmute all over what it is that you do day to day now for what it is that you stand out for, Jeremy. So um, when we talk about and again, I go back to, I, I work in different domains of all of this uh, from an abstract level, from a multi-layered concept level. So when I look at the fact that everything in life, I believe is an inside job and a lot of people who haven't self-actualized or they're still in denial or they're not maybe on top of their triggers or they don't understand the paradigms that don't support what it is they truly philosophically philosophically believe in and so they're carrying out old narratives and old scripts that don't support where they are currently so when you take all of if you're working with say a team of 20 people within a company and you know everybody is proficient in so many different areas but it's hard to arrive at say consensus on how something should be perhaps executed upon and even just trying to get a goal or a vision off the ground is what causes the conflict so the people themselves they're driven they're purpose driven um, but they just can't seem to reach consensus on how to get something perhaps off the ground and navigate it and then when you add in what we're all dealing and grappling with at the collective level of COVID and that exacerbating other people's internal frustrations or unresolved issues. How are you, have you noticed a difference in how people are showing up right now with whatever their so-called conflict is versus what might've been stereotypical in the workforce? You know, I get asked this question a lot. I actually don't see a big difference um, between now uh, in terms of, you know, people working remotely versus when they weren't. Um, there are actually some benefits to working remotely when people are in conflict because they're not sort of forced to work right next to the person all day that they are having a conflict with. And that lowers stress levels. And when stress is lowered, they can actually more um, usually reasonably navigate uh, interactions. 
So I, I don't see a whole, but that being said, that doesn't always uh, happen that way. So I don't see a whole lot of, of difference. People are human beings, uh, no matter where they are. Um, I do think that when they work from home, a lot of people are less stressed. So, mm -hmm. um, it opens up some space to build some trust and rapport and peace with each other. Um, you, yeah, you touched on a lot right there. So I, I, um, I, I think uh, number one, I just want to kind of piggyback on what you said in terms of martial arts. And I, I appreciate you kind of connecting the dots. I think some, uh, some folks have trouble connecting the dots between what seems like, you know, uh, I think to an outsiders who haven't practiced martial arts, it seems quite like a, a, a violent practice. Um, and how do you reconcile that with being a peace builder? But I, I agree with you that the, the, the facilities needed to become a, uh, martial artist, especially a high level martial artist. And I think it depends on who's your teacher and what school mm -hmm. you're in. But, um, you know, the, the, the foundation of building self-confidence, but also remaining humble and honorable and respectful and sincere and, um, dedicated, uh, disciplined, all of those are really, really important in martial arts. And I, I would say that it would be it, it's impossible to be a successful peace builder if you don't have those faculties because you you basically walk into the storm when you're yeah. doing peace building work. And uh, if you don't have the confidence and the humility simultaneously to deal with what comes at you, you're you are very likely to escalate the situation, become defensive and either just you know shut down or or blow up. So I think I I definitely see the connection there and and I've you know, Talked about that with a few people, but thank thank you for bringing that up. Um, in welcome. terms of yeah, uh, in terms I and I don't know was there um, you you mentioned this idea of like kind of coming into a situation where there's a um, a large team you know maybe a, a team of twenty people and they're not they're not figuring out how to come to a consensus on on mm -hmm. a particular idea. I think there's two things that are happening, and you can bucket this into two different areas. I mean. Number one, there's a negotiation process that needs to happen, but there's also a conflict resolution practice that needs to happen. And I think those two things conceptually can be teased apart because on the one hand, there's just a like, sort of a logistical or, or procedural matter that needs to be worked out. Like who, what do we think the best direction to go here? What's the best decision? And these people over here think that this is the best decision and these people think that is. And, and that's a process of negotiation and kind of, um, I think, probably information gathering and figuring out why you think this is the best and what challenges we see with that and that kind of thing. There's another piece to that, like a deeper layer, and, and this is a lot of times what we work with is in the, in the conflict resolution space. Um, when people are in that process, regardless of whether they get their way, regardless of whether the decisions that they, the decisions that are ultimately made align with the, the direction they wanted to go, if they don't feel heard and respected during that process, that leads to ongoing conflict. That leads to a feeling of mistrust um, and, and I think a lot of sort of what we call hostile attribution, which, which is basically filtering people's um, actions through a lens of hostility going forward. So if I don't feel heard, if I don't feel respected in a, in a particular decision-making process, then I'm going to start perceiving people not to be hearing me or respecting me going forward and all kinds of other processes that I'm dealing with them. And so I think it's really important, even this is something that I work with, with, with uh, companies in a, at a coaching and at a training level is being able to, uh, 
create a space during decision-making processes where people actually really feel included, where they feel that their input is being at least considered, not that they get their way at the end of the day, but mm -hmm. that they were at least considered. Bingo. And that's a really important part. Bingo. Well, and I think at the end of the day, that's all, I think we, you just succinctly uh, summed up what it comes down to for what creates unnecessary issues or angst or conflict amongst people. It's that feeling of invalidation or being yeah. undermined or being dismissed or glossed over. And I think people are quite apt to get on board, even if what the ultimate decision is, isn't somehow instrumental of what their particular input was. But what people do remember and what people hold on to um, is was I, as you said, was I at least listened to or my ideas even, you know, up for consideration? And I think if people feel respected and feel heard, uh, they're more apt to sign on to whatever people end up agreeing upon at the end of the day. That I, I do truly wholeheartedly believe that myself. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a such a big difference between those between those two. If you if you go if you if someone's asking you know, here's the decision we're making and they give you no space to make it to make an input. Or if you try to give input and they just don't hear you big, big difference between they do hear you, they consider it, they reflect back to you what they heard, you know, you were heard, you know, they were considering it and they still went a different direction and they give you some sense of like, this is the reason that we are going this direction. And I did hear you and I do think that your idea was good, but the, the challenge with that is, et cetera. This is the reason we're going this way. And we're going to check back in in 90 days. Or we're going to check back in in six months and see if this is working. And if it's not, then let's try what you said, or let's try something different. And we'll talk about that. You know, that's a bit, there's a big difference in, in a, in a decision-making process that way. Absolutely. Well, and I think to any person, uh, regardless of what the arena is or what the conversation is or what the goal or the vision is, I think if the person who's facilitating the conversation at least has the respect from an inclusive inclusivity standpoint to elicit each person's feedback. And let's, yeah. let's face it, when you're at the top, you're not here to placate everybody. Not everybody is going to get their so-called wants, needs, preferences met um, because it's not about each person's individual objective. It's about a common goal and taking that to market or whatever, implementing that in a way that derives results or favorable outcomes. Uh, but I think if, if knowing that not everybody's going to get the result necessarily they want, but they know that the going around the room and eliciting each person's individual feedback as opposed to waiting for somebody to raise their hand and say, uh, can you hear what I have to say? Can you not discount the fact that I'm sitting at the table here? I, I think it's all those nuance type respectful approaches that is going to make a difference with either exacerbating conflict or reducing conflict uh, or things just plateauing. Really? Yeah, I think ab ab absolutely. There, there is something about feeling that you, you are being respected at a basic level. In other words, you are being recognized. Your identity is, is um, validated in some way by being listened to, by being considered. It's, it's, it's not that as big of a deal to go, this is the direction I want to go. And then they say, no, actually, we're going to go this way. And this is why if that's not a big of a deal. If you actually feel that it was heard. So I, th I think that's, I think that's really important. I mean, three three things that I talk about um, the, in, in when I when I do training uh, in terms of best practices for decision making. I, I I always focus on inclusivity, transparency, and clarity. And these there are the three these are the three things that I see over and over create conflict in organizations when these when these three things are not um, included in a decision making process. 
you know, so I, so because if you, you can include folks like be inclusive. So, right. So, so if I'm going to, if we're going to make decisions that are going to affect people's lives, then we, then we need to, we need to somehow include them in the process or at least include them in the feedback process of the decision um, so that they feel that they're getting heard around topics that are really affecting them. Okay. So that's the inclusive part. Once you make a decision, it's, I think it's really important to be transparent about why you made that decision. So, okay, we heard you, um, but we're going this route. Mm -hmm. That's not very, that's not very satisfying. If, but if you can say, we heard you, we're going this route because we just, we considered your idea, the reason we think there's challenges with that, et cetera. And so you can create this, this, this sort of, um, much clearer, uh, much clearer decision-making process for people. If you're transparent about how you came to decisions and what, what other perspectives you considered and why you thought those weren't the best route. So that's the transparency and the clarity part is this is something that I see too, is people are making decisions, but it's not clear to the, to the stakeholders, or it's not clear to the people that are the decisions are affecting. And so like, you'll ask like, well, okay, so what is your, um, what is your return to work plan after COVID? And the, the leader is really clear on it. But you ask that of like five of the employees and none of them understand what the plan is. They're just kind of, they feel like they're all in limbo. Yeah. So something, something was not clearly transmitted. And so I think clarity is another, make sure that people are clear on the decision, what the direction is. And, and I think some accountability around it, like how do we know it's working? How do we know, you know, when it's not working, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, I, I very much respect and appreciate that those would be your three, uh, criteria specifically because I think even if you leave out one of them it still ruffles feathers it's still yeah. it's still convoluted it still becomes ambiguous and and problems get perpetuated as opposed to resolved and I think what you really touched upon at least my takeaway from having listened to you Jeremy which I appreciate is um when one is respectful enough to take the time to make it clear how they arrived at their decisions, why they arrived at their decisions, that also removes the personalization aspect for the person you know, who offered the feedback and perhaps mm, the feedback yeah. wasn't implemented. So there's no personalization in this. This isn't egoic. Mm -hmm. This isn't agenda-driven from the members that are sitting at the table. This is about taking what's been said, implementing it in a way. But yeah, we could certainly, if this doesn't work or we don't resolve this or we don't get to the outcome that we desire, uh, what you had to say was fantastic. And that might actually be incorporated in, as our contingency plan yeah that's that that's a, it's a that's a great point um i i, I yeah I, I, you know people are apt to make assumptions about gaps in information mm -hmm. so if if you if you are not clear and transparent about how you came to that decision people are apt to assume and you know we do have you know, it's a well-studied phenomenon that we do a lot of times have a negativity bias. And, and if, and if you're left to an assumption, a lot of people will assume you didn't, you didn't go that route because you don't like me or because you don't respect me. Mm -hmm. So if they're not, if you're not transparent about why you went that route, they are apt to personalize it, like you said. And, and so I think when you are transparent, you can take the, the you can depersonalize it. That's, that's a super important point. 
Well, and I appreciate you elaborating on that a little bit more because it is. I mean, you still want ultimate buy-in from all parties at the table. And so if somebody's left with a, a lingering bad taste or residual in their mouth, then there's going to be less participation. There's going to be less inspiration, motivation mm-hmm. to get on board, less buy-in. And so you as the person at the helm, if you don't play your cards right, if you don't treat people equitably and and, and take everybody's thoughts into consideration, and it's not whether you you believe you have has everybody at the table do they believe yeah. that you have right yeah, yeah because- absolutely and and asking the question does anybody else have anything to add absolutely. did i get to everything did i write everything down correctly does this look right to you so asking those questions to make sure that you did hear people correctly i think is also important there you know one know. one thing that i you know i you kind of alluded to this a second ago which is um so, so sometimes when I talk about this with leaders, especially kind of busy, you know, C-suite leaders, they're like, well, I just don't have time to do all this. I mean, how, who has time to make, I need to make decisions fast, you know, and, and I don't have time to, to go through this process and stuff. And I said, well, you know, you got to be discerning. And, and sometimes there are quick decisions that don't need to be, you know, fielded with everybody. I mean, I do think that most, you know, decisions that affect other people are large, typically larger decisions, but not everything, but, but what I would say is um, weigh the value of your workforce versus the, deci- the, the speediness of the decision you're making. Mm. What's, what is more valuable to you, getting this decision made right now or your workforce remaining happy? And I, and I don't think that's always on the line, but that's a question that I think you should ask because if, that's, if it's like, well, I don't have time to slow down, yeah, but if you don't slow down, what's what's the risk? The mm. risk is you start losing trust with the people that work for you. And in my opinion, employees, staff, or even contractors, those are your greatest assets. Without yes. them, your business doesn't run. So um, or so, exist or exist, right? So so yeah. So so make how do you how do you keep your workforce satisfied, engaged, um, happy, feeling trusted and trustworthy? Uh, you know, that that's important. And if you're if you're putting that if you're discounting that as a secondary to the priority of fast decision making, I would just I would say, you know, a how is it working? And B, um, you know, are, are you sure that that's the priority uh, order that you want to maintain? Absolutely. Well, and what you just said there, Jeremy, it tweaked for me, uh, because I got another download on that. And so it's, when, when, and I, 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 cause I'm in the C suite, so I understand time, everyone's chomping at the bit for time. And because we're A type personalities, we, we've got all kinds of things that we want to endeavor to do. And yeah. the more connected we become, then the more people we need to get back to, and so on and so on. But when you look at, the excuse that people have an inclination to make and and it's not to say that they don't think it's justifiable it's probably part of their day-to-day reality where i really don't have a lot of time however if you don't put on the brakes and evaluate to what degree this is not treated as a priority then by taking whatever length of time it would to just address it to get back to people again it's another form of respect um it's another form of buy-in 
then what ends up happening, depending on the environment, like if you're unionized or you're whatever, you're going to get a lot of people walking off the job or you're going to get a lot of people staying, but they're not, there's not going to be any productivity, productivity. Mm -hmm. There's going to be turnover, Mm -hmm. right? So now what, what you could have, what you said you didn't have time to do now you're forced because things have escalated and it's become a crisis that did not need to become a crisis now you have to de-escalate you have to diffuse the crisis and then people being intelligent are going to say oh too little too late or i you know if i was really important to you back then why weren't you proactively plugged into me why did you have to get reactionary for me to get your time yeah yeah i mean you're you're i think you're speaking to uh the difference between a a short-term thinker and a long-term thinker and i think the best the best leaders are long-term thinkers and if you're a short-term thinker you're you're discounting things that you know sort of in the long term and relate relationships are long-term endeavors um so if you're willing to willing to risk a relationship for short-term gains you're right you're going to end up probably it's going to cost you more whether it's you know financially or resource wise or reputation wise, it's going to, it could cost Mm. you more in the long term. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, again, not taking away or discounting the fact that whatever conflict you're invited to facilitate and to deescalate, you know, that's going to be different across the board. But I imagine in your, your experience, Jeremy, and your level of expertise, there's probably some common threads or common denominators of what you generally start to see play out, even if it takes a while to extrapolate it and go, okay, so this is where this started, or this is the origin of the problem, or this is what the tendency tends to be, but then it gets, you know, layered with all kinds of other things that optically make it appear something other than what it actually is when you break it down. So when you look at all the the so-called problems that you've been invited to resolve, the conflicts that you've been invited to resolve, has there been in your experience of evaluating either qualitatively, quantitatively, is there some general consensus of this is pretty standard, this is generally the starting point, this is the brewing point, this is the tipping point? Do you get a sense of that? You know, there, there's, there's, well, there's a, it's hard to say because I think every culture is different. And, um, Mm -hmm. but, but I think that number one, we are speaking to something that is very thematic throughout. And it's really about, do do people feel heard, respected? Do they feel that their input is being considered that that's a very, very common theme. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. so that's number one. Um, the, the other thing that's very interesting to me uh, that I that I learned doing this work is a lot of times long-standing conflicts between individuals or even between you know sort of different members of a team. A lot of times they they start with a single event, and when you dig into what's going on for people and how they're feeling and and what they're experiencing, and when you dig in a little bit, a lot of times you can get back to like some one event that happened, and it could be very very subtle. It could be like you know. I walked into, uh, who did I hear this from? I, I can't remember, you know, it's as simple as this. I walked into a, uh, to a room when I first started 12 years ago and you know, this'll, this'll come out in a dialogue, right? When I walked mm-hmm. into the room for the first time, the, the first time I, the first day on the job, I walked in, it was 12 years ago and I came in the room and everyone said hello to me, but you didn't, you just turned away. Mm. And no one ever talked about it. And for 12 years, they, this guy's been holding on to that. Uh, and, and, and so, and so the, the, the relationship, it was stuck in this place where they could, he could never really fully 
let go of it or, or, you know, or build trust. And so on top of that one incident, he built all kinds of other perceived slights. Mm. When he asked me that in that, you know, five years ago when he did that to me or three years ago when he asked me that or last week when he, when he told me this or, you know, all these things, they all are through this lens of hostility, this lens of, see, he's out to get me. He's watching me. He, he's suspicious of me. He doesn't <laughs> like me. It, all, all, it's all filters is because this one event catalyzed it. And, and it was, um, and that, you know, the, there's something about, it's called anchoring bias where you have a, it's almost like a first impression bias where you have, uh, you have one experience and then everything mm-hmm. gets filtered through and rel- it becomes relative to that one experience. And if there was just a little bit of reconciliation around that one experience, things can be reinterpreted. And, and the problem, the problem is a lot of times people do things or say things that get lost in translation. It's unintended conflict because let's say the guy didn't even see him or, or wasn't even looking for him or had something else on his mind that he just like had to write down or whatever it was. And it was, it had nothing to do with trying to disrespect the guy when he walked in the room. And if that was just cleared up, the intention was just cleared up right, you know, quickly after, if someone has a problem with something and they go, Hey, why didn't you say hi to me? And he goes, Oh, you know, I didn't even see you. And that was just cleared up that, that a lot of that conflict could be mitigated. Um, and the problem that, that happens is when you don't reconcile or reinterpret the event or the behavior very quickly, it gets solidified into this, what I call a conflict identity and people that get into conflicts for long-term periods, they get into a conflict identity, meaning part of their core identity in, in this context or their, their workplace identity is wrapped up in being in the conflict. And if mm. you start to challenge their version of things, or you start to even pose a, 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 a vision of becoming someone, becoming out, getting out of the conflict, hey, what does it look like to you to have a better relationship with this person? What does it look like to you to have a better relationship at work? If you start to pose that, it, it like starts, it feels like a challenge to one's basic core identity and they're so resistant to changing it. So mm-hmm. this, is the, this is the problem. And so how do you break down that conflict identity? How do you start to reconstruct and give someone a vision of what can, what, who can you be at a deep level in this context, in this space, whether it's in social context or in a professional context, who can you be? Who, what, who, what different vision can we create for you outside of this conflict, the conflict disappears. What's your purpose? What's your meaning? Who are you now? And we have to reconstruct that a little bit. Fantastic. Well, what you said there too, I mean, it's so simple, but we make it complex is it's setting the tone, right? I mean, I think when one walks into a room, it's not about being disingenuous or being on, but you need to be mindful of the fact that you're walking into a room full of different filters, different life experiences, different optics, different lenses. So if you are inclined to look at things, not from your position, not from your experience, but you're being judged, just like everybody else is being assessed, everybody else is being evaluated. And even if we just strictly go on energy, energy speaks volume. That's your introduction before you even open your mouth. I truly believe that. Hmm. So if you're coming from the framework or the perspective that I have to be, it's not about being on as a performer. I have to be mindful. I have to be conscientious. I have to be in the moment. 
Um, and I have to know that people are looking at me. So I need to not look at what what's on the food table necessarily, unless, of course, I'm engaged in a conversation to the left or to the right of me, but making sure that I'm capitalizing on that time frame so that hopefully the majority of the people, depending on the gathering, the amount of people gathering, uh, you know, I've left enough of an impression that what you see is what you get. And I've then, therefore, I've struck the balance and I've set the tone going forward. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's, I think that's a very practical way of looking at it of like, you know, how, how do I, how do I engage with people? How do I set the tone? Um, there's something else that you mentioned early on in this conversation. That's I think even at a deeper level and I, and it's, it's a basic premise that I think a lot of peace builders believe, which is to be at peace with others. You have to be at peace with yourself. Mm. There's an internal aspect of peace. And if you're, if you're engaging, and this is, I, I think this is an important message that I'm, I'm going to start trying to talk about more with people is if you're noticing that you're having a lot of issues at work, let with one person certainly, but with even but with multiple people or with the culture in general, mm -hmm. um, I th a lot of times what I've found, and I don't mean to discount people's experiences, but what I want to make sure is that I get this across is that there's an aspect of you that is not at peace internally with yourself, not relevant to the culture. Not be I'm not at peace because they're all out to get me. No, not I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there's something psychologically going on with yes. a lot of people that they're not at peace with themselves. They're in conflict. They're self-judgmental. Um, they don't accept themselves fully. And they project that onto yes. all kinds of other people. And so that's another thing is I, I you know, is to really be aware of that. I, I, there's a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like I started calling this, I started, I made up a name for it and I started calling it, um, the circular suspicion syndrome. Mm. And, and what it is, is it's this constant suspicion that other people are suspicious of me. It's the constant <laughs> suspicion that other people are out to get me. They don't trust me. They don't like me. Um, all of these kinds of things, it's constantly suspicious of every, of everybody else. And I've seen this when I, when I coach individuals sometimes, and, and I don't want to call it like hypersensitivity, although I think there's an aspect of that. I really think it's like a level of paranoia and the paranoia can be directed at one person, like mm -hmm. constantly suspicious that this one person's out to get me, or it could be directed at a bunch of people, a team of people, the whole company. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and it's really hard to look at because it's a deep psychological construct that if they let go of the suspicion again, they're wrapped up in a conflict identity. They don't know who they would be without being suspicious of everybody. Who would I be if they weren't out to get me? Who would I be if I, if I wasn't the one being targeted, you know, who mm. would I be? And you have to kind of, you know, work on that. So I, I just, I really want to emphasize that if you are, you know, experiencing conflict with some person or some entity or some group or some culture, et cetera, and you, you're constantly feeling like they're out to get me, um, just think about it. Think about if you're being overly suspicious. Think about if you're filtering their actions through a lens of suspicion. Mm -hmm. And it may it may actually not be as bad. Now, I'm not saying other people do things and it adds to the suspicion because sometimes people aren't even aware that they're they're being suspect. You know, an individual I walk I, I work with is like she she's like say suspicious of her boss always trying to to get get one up on her right. 
-hmm. if the boss isn't even aware that that's happening for this person, the boss doesn't even know it. The boss is just kind of going about her day or whatever. And she does stuff that, you know, if you have a lens of suspicion, the stuff that the boss is doing, it adds to that. It just, it mm -hmm. just like adds on like layer, you know, bricks on the wall. But, um, if we dismantled the the sort of basic mechanism of suspicion, I think those same actions would be looked at differently because like she'll she'll show me an email, for instance, and see, say, look at this email she sent me. Doesn't it seem like she's out to get me? She's trying to catch me doing this thing wrong. And I look at the email and I'm just like, you know, <laughs> it it's totally benign. She's just asking a question. Right. The only reason it seems like that is because it's being interpreted by you because you have a lens of suspicion. You right. know, and so well, and so so this is tough. Well, but, and it's true, though, because your inner dialogue, your inner narrative will go looking for evidence to support your convictions. And 100 percent. You will convince yourself and that, you know, that that goes for because it's we we exist within polarities and, and duality. So either on the positive end of the spectrum and what's considered intuitive and healthy or, you know, on the other Yep. opposite end of the spectrum yep. but it's funny because what you said there was a, a meme that went around on Facebook and I had uploaded it and it was just like a simple little box questionnaire that you tick off two questions and it says are you paranoid yes tick it <laughs> off or no and then somebody in their own handwriting writes who is this <laughs> right right yeah that's funny yeah yeah you can't even answer the question you have to be paranoid about the question yeah that's exactly. right yeah but um but I, I, and you know, and again, there's two schools of thought and I always like to go to the, I like to operate within the devil's advocate realm because I think it really interjects a lot more different perspectives and layers and flavors for what it is people might be grappling with. So we know, um, this has come up a lot in the professional industry, uh, gaslighting, right? There's a lot of gaslighting. Yeah. There's a yeah. lot. And, and again, it goes back to what you said at the top of the hour, Jeremy, where, you know, if, if you have a tendency or an inclination, even unbeknownst to you, but you seem to have a reputation, um, where it's not singularly just the viewpoint or the perspective of one particular party, uh, where, you know, you do tend to gloss over or invalidate people, or you don't frame things in such a way where people go, okay, that's okay that you discounted my idea, but the way in which you did it was ultimately respectful. And I respect that more than anything that's transpired in this dynamic or this exchange. Yeah, yeah. So from that, I, I trust you going forward and I, I trust not to personalize it. So I think people have to be very careful of, um, you know, I try to play devil's advocate with everything. And I did that within senior management uh, when I was working in crisis management and everything I did in that sector of industry, it was always about de-escalating, uh, de-confusing, de you know, conflict resolution. I mean, that's all we did Yeah. Um, because your ultimate I mean, you're ultimately responsible for so many people's lives. Um, and, and, you know, you want to get genuine buy-in. You want people to be consumer-driven. You want people to be, or sorry, client-focused. And you want people to be in, in compliance and adhering to the mission statement. Because it's a, it's a set of core values. And if you're out of alignment with the values, but the values themselves or the mission statement itself 
comes from an altruistic, all-inclusive, we are one, uh, nobody gets left behind type perspective, however you break it down uh, for your particular organization, your brand or your whatever, um, then I think if you're in line with the philosophy, you can pretty much work through everything. If you're really there for the client, if you're really there for the right reasons, people have a way of weeding themselves out. I believe mm. that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, I mean, it sounds like that, that requires a letting go of ego on some yes. level, a humility, right? So like, it's not all about me. I'm here for us. I'm here for clients. I'm here for I'm putting my ego aside that, that, you know, but that, and that, but I think to do that, it requires a level of inner peace. It requires a level of inner confidence and humility to, to, to let the ego go and not make it about yourself. And I think when people are making things about themselves a lot, Mm-hmm. It's reflecting a deeper insecurity. I, you know, and and the gaslighting topic is a very interesting topic, and 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 it has, you know, certainly it has an adv- there's an advantage because we've been able to name this phenomenon called gaslighting, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, discounting someone's uh, uh, version or of reality based on their perception or something. But there's also a negative part of it because you can use gaslighting as an excuse not to look at yourself. That's very so, true too. Right. So it's so, and I and I think this is the reason why it's so important, and you know, this is a kind of uh, this is why I do what I do is I think it's so important to have a neutral third party. In if there if this kind of thing is happening where one person's going, look, they're out to get me. They're they're trying to they're trying to challenge me. They're trying they're they're sort of harassing me or or discriminating or something like that. And the other person's going, you're crazy. I don't know what's what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so important to have someone who's neutral come to the table and examine the issue and interview each person, maybe interview other people, figure out what's really going on so that they can get, they can have a more general perspective and see like, okay, what is, is there something actually going on here? Is there something that's actually happening or is this person, you know, potentially uh, just oversensitive or hypersensitive or hypervigilant or something like that? Mm And, and, you know, are they using the, the 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 idea of gaslighting as an excuse not to look at their hypervigilance? Like, because if you said, well, you know, it seems like, you know, this person asked you this question, you thought it, you interpreted it as being a very a challenge to you. Uh, I'm seeing this as very benign from an outside perspective. Um, you know, they they could just use that excuse of like, well, you're you know, you're gaslighting me. You're you're telling me that my experience isn't isn't real or something. Mm-hmm. So that so that's that's an important piece. You know, and and they'd have to be willing. I, I don't think it's clear cut. I don't think it's binary where it's just like one person's wrong, one person's right. I think Absolutely. both people are contributing to it in some way, and the nuances of how how they're contributing it is the thing that needs to be dissected so that trust can be rebuilt. Well, have you ever found yourself in a situation? Again, I, I just go to the abstract, or I look upon previous experiences for what staff came forward and and needed to, we needed to conflict. Uh, a resolve conflict with, you know, dynamics within the team. So have you, how do you deal with a situation where you've got one party who perhaps is being proactive and they're saying, you know what, I want to be a part of the solution. Can you invite me to the table to be part of the discussion? Is there so, Because if there's something that I need to know that I don't know, I would yeah. like to know, you know, I, I need to, I need to know all the working pieces here. I need to know, you know, so if there's a, 
if there's a person that's feeling constantly excluded from the probability of more likely of working as a team, feeling like an, an integral member of the team, but they feel excluded, they feel iced out, they're not being taken up on any of their own initiative, their own offers of, can we be, uh, can I be part of the, the dialogue? You know, like, what am I not getting right? Like, wh what do I need to know that I don't know? Because I don't know what I don't know. So let's yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So what do you do in a situation where you've got one person who's taking uh, initiative, they're being assertive, they're being proactive, they're being vigilant, they're being conscientious, uh, but they're met with resistance in terms of even being invited to have the conversation? Where does a person go with that in, uh, situation? Well, I think this is very common, especially for leaders who are who are. If a, if a leader is a, is truly practicing what I would call servant leadership or transformational leadership, and they really do want to know what they could be doing better or what the issue is, can you please tell me? I, I need to know so that I can improve. If they if they're really truly honest about that, and they're not getting feedback from the people that are working for them or with them. Um, then there, there's some reason for that. And it's, and it's potentially because people don't feel safe. And it doesn't mean that this, that the, that the, uh, the leader is, is doing something to make them not feel safe. It could be that, but it, it doesn't mean necessarily that. So a lot of times I think people have trouble being honest because there are potential consequences. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to have some sort of, uh, retaliation they don't want uh they don't want to damage the relationship or sort of the copacetic status quo of the relationship and so they're hesitant to, to to talk about the real stuff that's bothering them or anything like that um so what i would say is you know this is something that i've i've done in my company um because i i found the same thing you know sometimes i would i would ask i have monthly one-on-ones with my direct reports and i would ask them you know what can I be? And I, I do this every month. I see, what can I be doing better? What else do you need from me that I'm not giving you? Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about? And I do that regularly. And for the most part, I think I get pretty honest answers, but then there's been times when I have heard through the grapevine that someone's upset about something. I don't know who it is, but someone else comes to me and says, well, a couple of people said they're upset about this or they don't like this or something like that. And they never mentioned it in their one-on-ones. And I thought, well, how, how else can I get the information I need if they're not willing to give it to me in my one-on-ones? Um, I don't know what else to do to, to be a more a safe or trusted person. So what else can I do? So, you know, I have different mechanisms of gathering that information. I do my one-on-ones. I also have an internal person who we call our internal peace builder, who anyone can go to confidentially and talk to and get advice from. And that person can then relay information to me with, without mentioning names, if that mm -hmm. needs to happen. I also have an anonymous feedback form that gets, as soon as anyone puts anything in there, it gets directly relayed to me so I can look at it right away. Um, so that I have different mechanisms so that people really feel that they have some route to get me information if they need to. Um, so, so that's, that's number, I, I think, so in terms of giving feedback, that's, that's number one. And the, um, and I don't, is, is that what you were speaking to or was it? Well, yeah, but let me break that down. Let's yeah. say, let's say, okay, the higher up you go and your cohorts, your coworkers, uh, your team, you, you know, however you wish to define it, but you're operating at such a high level that you're interacting with people who are equally on par with you at the same sure. high level. And everybody perhaps is working in the same 
uh, industry and they're working with the same jargon. And it's like, you know, leadership and authenticity and all these things that get Mm -hmm. thrown out. But you're one person might perhaps be experiencing a little bit of is that a congruent message? Because if we're all operating within the sphere of authenticity and and uh, being transparent and all these things, um, how then does one correlate that with not showing up to have the conversation when you've been invited to have the like the person who's saying, can we please have the conversation? I value uh, you. I, I value you. I respect you. You're uh, respected. You know, uh, I hold you in high esteem. But for whatever reason, we've kind of come up against a bit of a snag. And somebody who's in the domain who's professing all these things that makes them who they are in terms of reputable, credible, sought out. But they're not demonstrating that with a particular individual, which calls into question, like, who are you? Like, what what is it you really stand for? What is it you really represent? Because you're quite willing and receptive and open to doing that with everyone else. But I see that you're discounting what, you know, Tommy over here has to say. What what would that be about? So so you're saying um, there there is a potential conflict and. Uh, and, and one of the parties of the of the conflict are is a sort of unwilling to come to the table to discuss it. Is that what you're saying? Won't even acknowledge you that you've even asked to be uh, part of the conversation. Like won't even say yes, won't say no, says nothing. Yeah. Well, I mean, so first of all, all all conflict resolution processes, uh, you know, are about communication and relationships. And so if the person's not willing to communicate at all, they're manifesting uh, a lack of desire for the relationship to continue. But that being said, I mean, so at some point, I'm assuming that if you work with someone, they have to they have to respond to you. And I and I would just say that if someone's unwilling to come to the table because it's too uncomfortable of a conversation or what for whatever reason, there's there's two things that need to be investigated. Number one is their their fear, and number two is their motivation. So their fear is about what are you what are you afraid of? What's scary about this conversation, or what might happen as a result of this conversation? What what's stopping you from having it? And digging into that. And the other part is the motivation, which is, um, and, and just talking from sort of what I what I would do if I was brought into a conflict and one of the parties was like, I don't want to have the conversation. If they're at least willing to talk to me, this is what I would ask. I would ask, what are you afraid of? What happened? And, and, you know, and sometimes it's like, I'm not afraid of anything. I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. And I think it's going to be a waste of my time. Okay. So you're, so say, okay, so you're, you're afraid that you're going to waste your time. Got it. Um, the, the other part is the motivation. How motivated are you to resolve this? Um, and, and that comes down to what's at, what's at risk? Uh, if, if the person's like, listen, I don't need to talk to this person for, to do my job. I don't, you know, uh, they're, they're not my boss. I don't really need to see this person to do my job. Um, I can just do my job over here and they can do theirs over here and let's like not have any communication. You're not, that's a low level of motivation. There's really nothing at risk for that person to just keep the status quo. But so, so there, you need to help, you help them find a level of motivation. What's really, if there's nothing at risk, then someone's not going to come to the table. People come to the table and are willing to get uncomfortable because conflict resolution can be uncomfortable. Um, they're willing to get uncomfortable and put resources into resolving a conflict, energetic resources and time resources, um, because there's something either they want or there's something at risk. 
And that, mm-hmm. that needs to be uncovered and it needs to be made salient for the person so that they recognize, wait a minute, if you don't do this, this relationship is a risk and that could mean X, Y, Z. And make that really clear. Let's really make that clear. Are you willing to risk that if you don't come to the table? So there's, you know, so, and so what can be, if you do come to the table and it goes well, what, what's the upside? Like, that's also a motivational factor. What's at risk? What's the upside? You know, I think those things need to be flushed out if someone's not willing to come to the table. Mm, Fantastic. Well, being cognizant of time, because I could talk to you forever. These are some of my favorite subject matters, but uh, you're always welcome to come back. Jeremy, but I'd like to give you the opportunity for the benefit of the listening audience, uh, the radio listeners and the podcast subscribers. Where can people reach out to you? How can people establish or initiate uh, an initial consultation with you? And what's up and coming for you if there's anything to be shared on the calendar that people might be interested in partaking in? Sure. Yeah. Um, your, my web, our website is pollockpeacebuilding.com. So people can reach out there very easy to get, get through to us there. Um, my, my book is called the conflict resolution playbook, uh, which you can get on Amazon and, um, upcoming, you know, we're, we don't have any, uh, sort of, we don't do any kind of, uh, public open public events. Okay. Uh, we, we work specifically with organizations, but, um, but yeah, happy to t- chat and we have free consultation for anybody that, has a conflict or at least can foresee some conflict or wants to prevent conflict through training or something like that. So I'm happy to chat. Beautiful. Well, and keeping in line with, uh, you know, making sure people feel validated, people feel seen. Is there any question you wish I had asked of you that I didn't, that's important for the listening audience to know about you? Uh, no, I think this was a great conversation. Um, you know, one thing that I'll leave, maybe leave you with is, I, I tend to put conflict resolution as a general framework into two, two, two buckets. The first bucket is care and the second bu- bucket is resolution. Um, and I think that it's really important to keep these two buckets in mind and put them in that order because when you kind of, when you try to resolve conflicts with someone or you want to get to a place of peace or cooperation with someone, I would always say, can you put care first before jumping into what a solution would be like? Can you just care for the person? before you try to figure out the solution. Oh, I love that. I love that because if nothing else, it reinforces people's humanity, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's lovely. I really enjoyed, I really appreciate ending off on that note. Um, and very quickly, what does living fearlessly mean to you, Jeremy? Ooh, living fearlessly. I, you know, I, I think that especially in this context, it's scary to resolve conflicts and it's scary to have difficult conversations and living fearlessly would mean being willing to, to f- face the, un- the discomfort, being willing to be uncomfortable in order to help the relationship grow. That would be really fearless. Beautiful. Love that. Well, I want to thank you very much for the gift of your time. We unpacked a lot in a finite period of time. And I think everything that you had to say, uh, not only offered validity, merit, credibility, but great deep insights that I think people could really benefit from at the individualistic level, as well as in the working domain where you have to, you know, interact with people, you have to get along with people. Uh, embrace other people. But uh, what you said here really benefits people at the micro level as well as the macro level. So I appreciate uh, your wide range, broad perspective where everybody who's tuning in can benefit from this. So thank you very much for that, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate being here.
And for the listening audience, I want to thank you as well for the gift of your time uh, and for joining myself and my wonderful guest of this Friday, Jeremy Pollock. Uh, I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose. My purpose is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. So until next Friday, when we're joined by yet another phenomenal guest, I wish you all my very best. Stay safe, healthy, and uplifted. Take care. All my best, everyone. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero. Be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.